Around Comics, Episode 9. Thank you for listening to another episode of Around Comics, where every week we assemble a new panel to discuss topics in and around the world of comics. I'm your host, Christopher Neesman, and I am joined, as always, by my partner in crime and the producer of the show, Brian Salazar. Hello, everyone. Rounding out our panel today is a mainstay of the show. He is also our guide into the world of manga. He is Matt Summer. Hey guys. Welcome to the show, Matt. This is our fourth week in a four-week series of shows taking a look at the world of comics. In our first episode, we looked at the continuity of the current DC universe. In our second show, we looked at the House of Ideas and everything that is going on in the world of Marvel. Uh, Last week, uh, Bruce Rosenberger was on the show to help us take a look at the larger independent and alternative press market, and this week, we are going to look at manga and its place and effect in the world of comics. Um, We'll start with Matt. You are a, a huge manga fan and have been for quite some time. Uh, I want to start out, and, and we're going to do this as as kind of a, a, a history lesson slash uh, informative show on manga, uh, assuming that a lot of the listeners haven't stepped into that uh, that playground in comics. Matt, what would your definition of manga be? Uh, to me, I mean, manga basically is very simple. Uh, it's comics that come from Japan. For our discussion, any comics that come out of Japan and the Japanese publishing houses there. Well, you know, the one of the reasons that we're looking at manga is because of its um, increase in sales. It has uh, come from Japan and it has made a, a serious impact in the sales of. Uh, of comic books as a, a genre. Now there are people that would say that manga is not in the same genre as as mainstream American comics. Would you agree that it is complete and separate from mainstream American books? Yeah, I, I have to say, looking at the demographics, looking at who's buying manga and who's making this manga boom successful right now, there's there's really very little crossover in the readership and there's very little crossover in actually how the books sell and how they're marketed and where they're sold and that kind of thing. Is it manga or manga or does it matter? Well, you're going to get your purists that are going to say it's manga and it technically is manga if you pronounce it in the proper Japanese you know, way. Uh, Japanese only has five vowel sounds. So it's pretty straightforward on how you pronounce things. Now, obviously, any word that we adapt and, and comes into English usage, you know, is subject to to change. Now, I just say manga because that's the way I say it. Um, I know that that's not really necessarily c- correct, but you know, it, it depends on to whether they're going to be a hard ass about it or not. Like Chris, <laughs> it's a, the difference between karaoke and karaoke. They both suck. Yeah, exactly. We, actually, I mean, we have a, a listener email 
which talks about uh, some of the mango sales. This is uh, from Simi on the, the forums, and uh, it says, uh, Hi Matt, I haven't been reading comics for that long, but I keep hearing about this huge manga sales figures. What I'd like to know is just how big the presence of manga is, and how does the rest of the American comic industry fit in alongside it? I know where I am from, Melbourne, Australia, there appears to be more manga available than regular comic books. I've read a couple of mangas since the Monster Review, uh, Eden Volume 1 and 2, which I really enjoyed, and Pilgrim, is it Pilgrim Jagger, uh, yeah. Volume 1, which I didn't like so much. I'm definitely impressed enough to look into it more. Um, so I guess the question is, you know, how does manga fit into the American comic industry? Well, let's... Um going to be a really long-winded answer because I want to go back to kind of talking about where manga started in Japan, where it started in the U.S., and then kind of where it is now. So let's just let's do that first. Now, here's your real nerdy kind of thing. Um, the word manga actually in Japanese means uh, random or whimsical pictures, and it uh, originated in the eight, late 18th century. But um, manga as we think of it today really originated in the 1940s, which was uh, at the end of World War II and, and during the American occupation. Um, Japan, not necessarily a super powerhouse of um, prosperity. And so manga was a cheap, uh, real readily available entertainment source for the people at the time. Now, most of you guys have probably heard of this person to talk about now, but... Um, the guy that's referred to as the father of manga, the god of manga, um, he's sort of like Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Walt Disney, and everyone rolled into one in Japan. And he's a guy by the name of uh, Osamu Tezuka, who did Astro Boy, who uh, did a lot of other things, Blackjack, uh, Phoenix, uh, Buddha, Adolf, a bunch of things that we've seen translated here um, he's really credited with the person who invented literally invented single-handedly the style and kind of the techniques and the uh, the way that things go using really cinematic camera angles and um, and using the big eyes and let's talk about that a little bit I know it's one of the things bugs people when they look at manga for the first time you know what the hell's up with all those big googly eyes um, Seriously, came from Tesla in the 40s, uh, watching things like uh, you know Bambi and Disney movies and Betty Boop cartoons and things. And if you go back and look at, it, uh, they all have that really big, big eye. So style. you're saying it's Betty Boop's fault? <laughs> yeah, basically it is. <laughs> and so, and and, and he kind of set a lot of the stage for the people that were going to come after and so it just sort of stuck kind of a cultural you know though this is the way we draw comics is draw them you know with these kind of exaggerated features and um you know really expressive looking eyes that could show a lot of emotion and things now are our artists in in manga are they restricted from drawing in a hyper realistic style you know, I, I have seen some styles that differ, but that that seemed to be the mainstay. Is the you know the very what I would call an anime, large eyes, very cartoonish. 
Well, um, what happened is that that style, really simplified style, um, an exaggerated big eye kind of style, that was pretty popular uh, in the 40s and 50s. Uh, 60s and 70s in Japan came along, and, and the original readers were kind of getting older, and they were looking for more adult, kind of a uh, little more advanced work. And so we did start getting... Um, some different styles. We started getting comics that are aimed at at more, you know, older uh, men, like eighteen to twenty-five, as opposed to younger kids. And um, the styles change depending on the seriousness, usually, of the book and who it's aimed at. So, for example, for uh, comics that are aimed at men or adults, you're not going to see that kind of style. Um, you know, if you've looked at the monster volume and, and that kind of thing. You can see that's very... Well, it's still sort of a little bit exaggerated in some ways. It's, it's still a lot different than what you're maybe well, telling. Well, a book like GTO it looks very American in its style. Okay, right. The people now, like the in the 80s and the 90s, obviously they're being influenced still by films, by American... Um, you know, uh, TV and, and other things that they're seeing, and so that is coming into the style, and that has changed. Uh, and again, like I said, depending on what you're going for, uh, every aisle, you know, here, every artist has their own style. So, more or less along kind of the same route, but... Well, a lot of it, though, comes from, you know, just the, the speed that they want to be able to produce things to. Also, it's a simplified form that lets them produce, you know, incredible amounts of work uh, because they're you know they're they're doing these you know, comparatively i mean aren't most uh books that come out uh, manga style i mean it's more like 40 pages as opposed to 22 and and they're you know serializing them in a lot lot faster rate so i think you know initially they wanted a simpler style to try and be able to produce you know a lot of work in a short amount of time where you know you're trying to do something hyper realistic or, or you know realistic look is going to take obviously much more long you know a long time to do right let me segue into um how manga is produced in japan in the way that it comes out um you're right that originally it was simpler to make it done quicker and faster now as the years went along and production quality got better and um you know, we get more technology and other things involved in the process. It gets more and more, you know, advanced, and they can get things done faster. Um, typically, the way the mangas produces that there are um, magazines that come out depending on, you know, who it's aimed at. There's magazines aimed at, at boys. There's magazines aimed at girls. There are magazines aimed at uh, older men. There are magazines aimed at housewives. There's magazines aimed at kids that are like eight years old so all these magazines come out and they're colloquially referred to as phone books because they're printed on really cheap crappy newsprint um you know usually multiple colors um usually about five six seven eight hundred pages uh and the exchange rate right now i just looked it up that for one of these magazines like, uh the japanese shonen jump for example, it's about 800 pages. has about 20 uh, different stories in it every week at about 20, 30 pages per story. Um, that's going to cost you about a buck eight five wow. right now. That's, uh, that that's a fair. value we're not used to here in uh, in American books. But you, you talk about all the different genres. 
one of the things that you know the the figures that gets thrown around a lot is that uh, upwards of about eighty percent of the population of Japan reads manga. Japan. <laughs> I'm getting my A's and O's all messed up. <laughs> about eighty percent of the population of Japan reads manga. Is is that accurate, Matt? Um, it is pretty accurate. I don't have exact, but it's one of the reasons why you can't really compare the United States comic industry to the Japanese comic industry is that along the line, there's always been the last like thirty, forty years, there's been a graduated step. So when you were a kid, you have comics aimed at you. When you're a teenager, you have comics aimed at you. When you're um, getting your first job in a corporation, there are comics about guys getting jobs in corporations. And for you know, and there's manga about people who play golf. There's manga about people who uh, play mahjong. There's manga stories about people who you know are single parents. Whatever. There's like story for everyone. AroundComics.com, your source for discussion, news, and reviews about your favorite comics and creators. New podcasts available every Monday. Go to www.AroundComics.com. Anyway, you know, one of the things that I, I, I did read in regards to that, e- that, that listener email in, in the dollar amounts I had read, and I don't have hard numbers to back this up, but that in Japan, their weekly income from from comics uh, is sometimes more than the yearly U.S. market in dollars. Yeah, I've heard that thrown out there. I think where that comes from is the fact that each one of these magazines, like I mentioned, Shonen Jump put a 800-pound gorilla of manga magazines, and it's gone down, and Japan actually has had a publishing slump the last few years, but they that magazine peaked at six million weekly sales. Wow! So weekly, and so yeah, I mean it's a, it's a big part of their economy. Publishing is a really huge part of the economy, and it's you know it's big business. And part of that too, I think, has to do with that it is much more of a computer culture. And comics are just, uh, you know, there's really not that much collector's mentality. Uh, manga's available, you know, at any stand. Uh, you can, you know, people pick it up, they read it on the train, they throw it in the garbage can. You know, it's kind of like a more matter-of-fact part of life. It's kind of like the USA Today. You just buy this newsstand, read it on the train, and then you're done with it. Yeah, pretty much. Hmm. Now... That's the weekly or the monthly um, kind of way that things are published. Now, what happens next is not very similar to what happens in the United States, where we get, um, if a series is successful enough in the weekly magazine, you know, after they get about 200 240 pages uh, then they'll release the trade paperback or the uh, collected volume and w- and that's really what we're seeing now is that kind of digest size compilation of 200 whatever plus pages from the weekly book and so it, it really does function in the same way 
where it uh, you know puts it a nicer format if you want to collect it, if you want to read it, if you missed the chapter, um, you know you can go into the bookstore and it's going to be there. Um, and again, as cheap as those have come uh, become in the United States right now, um, those trade paperbacks, Japanese they they go for about about four hundred yen, which is about three dollars and fifty cents. Matt, how many manga publishers are there in in Japan? I mean, are there hundreds of them, or are there a select few big publishing houses? Well, it's, I mean, there's a lot of different, but the the main three that I'm going to talk about that really are the biggest players are um, uh, Suecia, Shigaku-kan is another, and those two are actually own in the United States. And so that's why Viz gets a lot of uh, licenses of like the hot properties. Because anything that they own from those two companies, basically they have, I'm assuming they have first crack at. And uh, the other big manga producer is Kodansha. And uh, most of the stuff that Tokyo Pop puts out and all the other smaller companies in the United States, are they're mostly going through the Kodansha backstock. Well, we've talked uh, about manga in Japan and a little bit of the history and the publishers there. Uh, let's bring it across the ocean and talk about how manga has um, come into the United States and how it's affecting this market. All right. Um, now, this is all my own personal experience. So again, I'm sure that some people could maybe argue with me about this, but um, manga in the U.S. basically, I think, stems out of the stems out of the black and white comic boom that was going on in the early to mid 80s um, you know Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, hit it really big and other smaller studios then they were rushing to find you know quality black and white material to publish and you know bam here's this uh, Japanese comics you know perfect wide variety of black and white stories that uh, had never been reprinted before um, the first comic I remember ever seeing actually was a book by the name of uh, Ninja High School, which still is published now uh, through Anarchic Press. Uh, a guy by the name of Ben Dunn uh, grew up in Asia and was really influenced by a lot of these manga that he was reading, and so he came back here and kind of started his own comic that poked fun at some of these genre things and, and uh, you know, giant robots and alien princesses and all this kind of stuff. And that's actually the what I would say is the first you know original English language kind of manga style book that came out over here. But and we'll talk more about what that term means later. Um, along with uh, Ninja High School, we also had First Comics, which uh, published Lone Wolf and Cub here in the U.S. with the Frank Miller covers, and we got Eclipse Comics that published uh, My the Psychic Girl. Uh, Area 88, uh, Kamui, which is a ninja kind of action story. Um, do you, any of you guys, did you get River read any of those, or you remember those from the 80s? I was a big fan of One Wolf and Cub. Yeah, I, I read One Wolf and Cub, and um, my my manga experience has been really limited. That I, I remember reading um, some Akira stuff, but not a ton. Okay, yeah, well, those, I mean, everyone, no. Lone Wolf and Cub, obviously, was sort of hot for a while, and a lot of people that were around at the time remember, especially from the Frank Miller 
kind of tie-in. Um, now, now they also didn't, they, at the time, they didn't actually finish publishing that though, did they? Before they went out of business first. Um, no, I think they published like forty-five issues, uh, and they published them in a square-bound format that were like forty-eight pages, mm-hmm. I think, per book. So yeah, they got about halfway through, and then uh, we'll talk about that later. But then Dark Horse kind of took over. Um, well, so for, Epic, from my standpoint, as uh, you know, just a comic fan at the time, I think I was like you know twelve. I didn't think of it as manga or being from anywhere else. I just thought of it as just a different kind of comic. It was one of the first black and white comics beyond you know Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles that I had ever read. So I didn't really feel a huge difference in it like I do with manga today. Well, I think that's um, also maybe what the young readers now who are feeling that manga boom uh, feel. But other publishers at the time, I mean, Epic uh, published the first version of Akira in the U.S. and they 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 actually colorized it. I guess they didn't think that Americans maybe could handle black and white comics. Um, Dark Horse came out with. Um, Appleseed and Ghost in the Shell and, and Outlanders and that's a lot of what what a lot of I find comic people now that have ex- been exposed to manga that's the kind of thing that they remember reading uh, back in the early 90s so I don't know, does that fit? Did, Sal, did you read some of those? I think I remember you telling me that you read some of those before. Yeah, Appleseed I think I had, I had read some of that um, yeah, I mean I think you you pretty much have 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 a grasp on on what most people would associate at that time. Um, well, that you know right, that now, brings up that brings up a point that that I thought was that you know I read Ghost in the Shell. Of course, I saw the the anime of it, which I loved. Is there a connection between those in Japan? Are are a lot of anime are those adapted from manga or vice versa? Is there are they joined at the hip in Japan? Yeah, basically, what happens is that. You know, and we we bitch about that here as comics, you know, being written as, you know, movie fodder or something. But it, the way that it works is basically, uh, if a manga series is successful, uh, it's almost 100% guaranteed that they're going to make it into an animation, um, a weekly, you know, a television show, whatever, to air after, you know, at, like we have here, cartoons after school, what have you. So if it's successful, it'll get made into an anime series, um, depending on how well the TV series does then they'll keep making more episodes uh, you know, until they run out and um, usually when the series is over, when the manga series ends and, and the TV show uses all those storylines then the TV show pretty much ends as well. Now there's a few exceptions to that rule but that's generally how it works. Um, well I think that's, I mean that was sort of my perspective on, on manga stuff when I first was ever introduced into it is I thought it, it all was spawned from anime you know it, I think like the first thing I ever came in contact with was you know Speed Racer was really the first sort of Japanese style anime style cartoon that I ever saw and, and, and so I always sort of associated anything you know from Japan in the comics or, or, or animation world to that and it's not necessarily very accurate but I, I think it, a lot it, of people Mm-hmm. who haven't read a lot of stuff, that is what we kind of, you know, what their exposure is. It's kind of what they think of. Oh, that's Speed Racer stuff, right? Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's understandable. Totally. And I think today well, you have uh, it maybe even more where you have 
you know, Pokemon or Digimon or, you know, Dragon Ball Z or, you know, that stuff that you see all over the cartoon channels and, and people certainly, you know, associate that with, with manga. What's weird about it in the U.S. is the fact that um, we have a, the total back assword way here. Because in Japan it goes from, basically goes from uh, manga to animation. And what we get here, because the comic industry up till now has been so insignificant to the general pop culture landscape, we've almost always gotten the anime first. And then if that's successful, we might see the ancillary you know, comics mm-hmm. come afterwards. So that might be part of why the, uh, you know, we have that perception. You're listening to Around Comics. It's like talking to your best friend's sister, and she's hot. Let me continue on a little bit with uh, the history of manga being published in the U.S. In the in the early '90s, we had we saw for the first time um, Viz coming onto the scene, and they started out and they they made a lot of their sales by publishing the works of Rumiko Takahashi, who is uh, her big hit was Ranma, one half. Um, my Sonic Koku is another series, and so uh, right now she's also her latest series is um, uh, Inuyasha. Okay, so that's even still going pretty strong for them. So that came along. They were they were kind of the dominant publisher for a while, but the thing that was really limiting, and the reason why Mangan took so long to take off, is the fact that they adapted. Um, a format that was never meant to be in an American comic style publishing format and they put it that way they sold these books at three bucks a pop for 30 pages in um, a normal American comic book size they flipped all the artwork um, so that it didn't read you know quote unquote backwards for English readers they hired people like Gerard Jones and some other comic professionals to basically in some cases rewrite the whole script to make it, you know, appeal to Americans what they thought Americans would want. And so that that really limited it and it kept the books, kept manga in the comic shop, you know, kept it in that little format that was going to be, you know, a monthly format and and they'd come out with the trade paperbacks every once in a while that were, you know, 18, 20 bucks for the format. And what really caused the change, what really caused a change in the industry here and what led to the boom is the entrance of a company that was called uh, Mix. And, and they later on turned into Tokyo Pop. They were the first, really one of the first companies in the United States to, to attempt to publish a Japanese style uh, comic anthology with four or five series uh, together on kind of cheap paper and, and and try that format. And for what it was worth, um, it, went, it, it was pretty successful, went over pretty well. Now, it didn't take them long, unfortunately. They changed everything about what they were doing. They changed it from cheap newspaper to, to uh, you know, glossy stock, and they started talking about video games and, like, hipster, I don't know, street tuning kind of whatever articles in their in their magazine but what they did what Tokyo Pop did what what they did to revolutionize US industry is selling the manga in the small digest format 
for nine ninety five. Uh, that was their, you know, they really kickstarted this whole thing because that got got the books in the bookstores. Uh, you know, a lot of pages for a, a good price. And what it did is it drove the industry. They saw, you know, they saw a lot of success with those sales. And so Viz, you know, said, oh, what are we doing? You know, we got to match what they're doing. And, and Dark Horse also, you know, they got a smaller, cheaper, you know, we got to follow suit. We got to get our stuff into bookstores. Um, you know, it all became about price and it all became about, you know, how many pages that you get in there. And that's really, I think, the key to what lead what led us to where we are right now with this sales boom going on. Which is kind of funny well, because it's almost mm-hmm. the opposite of what American comics do. You know, it's like you know, f- cheap paper, black and white, huge, you know, big thick digest for a cheap price, as opposed to, you know, the 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 American counterpart of that is you know either the essentials or the the Marvel essentials or the or the the showcases, which is you know golden age or silver age stuff that they're reprinting as opposed to brand new stuff um, mm-hmm. trying to publish it so it's kind of interesting that it's been you know extremely successful yet you don't see Marvel or DC really trying anything like that they're still going with you know high high gloss full color 22 pages mm-hmm. for three bucks well, I think you're. Yeah. I think you're looking at the difference between the collector and the reader at that point. Uh, I don't know that many people that collect manga, but I know a lot of people that read it, and that digest format is is easy for that. And you look at a bookstore. You know, anyone that's gone into a Borders or a Barnes and Noble and go to the the manga section, which is usually, uh, and I'm going to say manga and manga alternately here, so I can piss <laughs> everyone off. But uh, if you go into those sections of the bookstores and you look at the manga section, it's very nicely kept. All of the books are pretty much the same size. You can follow a series right along and see where it starts and stops. And then you turn around and you look at the comic section where all the trade paperbacks are. I have yet to go into a store and look at one of those and go, oh my god, that is, what a mess. So, you know, from a retailer standpoint, it's, it's a heck of a lot easier to shelf that stuff. You're right. That uh, universal kind of size that fits on normal bookshelves, um, this, you know, uh, very clearly labeled spines and things. You know, I go and you into Borders or uh, Barnes and Noble and the the American comic trade paperbacks. They're usually jammed almost like on a magazine rack or something like. They're all different sizes. Um, you know, DC and Marvel have been really poor with like continual numbering of trade paperbacks. I think. Well, they'll, they'll start um, it, and then they never seem to take it through. And then you, whenever they reprint it, it's it's a different spine. And so you may get you know volume volume one of you know essential Fantastic Four, and then they'll reprint, and the spine will look different for volume two or whatever. And you don't see that with manga. That's true. Um, right now, they have pretty much stabilized it. Now- during the late '90s, uh, before this, before Tokyo Pop really kind of forced everyone's hand, there there was a lot of variation, um, a lot of different sizes, a lot of different different things. But right now, they've settled on, um, like I said, basically what what the publishers have settled on is the the smaller digest size, uh, a price point generally from $7.99 up to about $12.95. Um, Viz really got aggressive for being kind of like the later person to the digest party. Um, 
they really got aggressive on pricing and a lot of their books the books that they sell the most of uh you're getting 240 pages for 7.99 uh which is i don't know a great actually you know to me as a comic fan as somebody who's been buying manga and someone who who um you know paid 295 for 30 pages that's nuts I mean, that's it goes from being a big purchase to just you know um an impulse kind of buy Mm-hmm. You know, that's something that I was going to ask you guys what you thought because I, for some reason, you know, we were talking. You were talking, with Chris, about the collector reader mentality, and it's like the the limited number of, of manga stuff that I've bought the the trades. For some reason, even though they're you know they're, and maybe because they're published nicer, they're printed on you know in a with a better spine, they're thicker, there's more weight to them. I don't seem to have the same mentality as opposed to the singles that I buy of American comics, where I bag and board them and, you know, make sure that they're kept straight and I don't want to crease them or anything. And with the trades, it's almost like, because it's so cheap, it's a throwaway. You know, it's like, I I don't worry about necessarily keeping them in good condition because it's so inexpensive. I'm, I'm more... I'm purchasing it just simply to buy it like I would a paperback book, and I think that's part of the success of it, too. It's, you know, paperback books opposed to hardcovers or something that you is, you know, in this case, it's flimsier, so you have to keep, you know, keep it um, more protected. Well, I mean, whenever you go and you buy Ultimate Spider-Man number one, you throw it in a bag and a board, and you go, wow, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep that with the rest of my collection, because you know, you never know whenever something is going to spike in value. Whenever you go and you buy, you know, uh, you know, Monster Volume 1 from Barnes & Noble, you're not buying that going, wow, you know, this, this $9.95 um, paperback, oh, it might be worth $50 in a couple years. You know, I mean, does that... It, does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, that's part of it, too. I mean, like Sal said, it goes from, it's not a collectible, it's just a book that you buy from the bookstore, you know, just like any other paperback. And I'm kind of anal with my paperbacks, and when I read a book, I kind of want to keep it nice, but, you know, I don't really care. It's not like you're saving it for collectible reasons, just, you know, you have it on the shelf, you know, maybe you'll look at it later, or whatever the case is, but that is a big part of it. Listen to AroundComics.com. It's not just for 12-year-old boys. It's for 13-year-old boys, too. The main difference is, and this is one of the problems that these American companies have had, is that we have, you know, the standards, the cultural standards of, you know, what we consider decent or appropriate for kids are very different from Japan and Europe and, and to the U.S. So what you end up with, why a lot of people are, are, are really kind of are upset with is that a lot of times we get you know comics that are meant for younger audiences but because there's one thing there might be a child you know uh, one of the main characters who's naked for a shot or something which is perfectly fine for kids in Japan but in America that gives you a teen rating or something so um, what happens is that just like with movies you know um, these publishers want the books to be teen or appropriate for younger readers because that's where their fan base is. So if there's too much nudity, if there's too much uh, violence or something like that, some of these companies are uh, breaking down and they're they're editing the books to fit into that demographic. So uh, some people don't care. Um, fans are really upset, some of them, but uh, 
That's how well, it is always. It certainly goes to the, you know, I mean, that's a bigger issue as far as the cultural differences between, you know, here and there. And and on the one side of it, you can't really blame the publishing companies on either side of it. But um, in regards to the, you know, in regards to the cultural differences, let's talk about, to try and give people an un, a better understanding of it, um, some of the definitions of the terms that are used with manga. Okay, um... First off, like we said, uh, manga or manga, however you want to say it, uh, basically just refers to Japanese comics. Uh, it's a it's it's a word kind of like sheep, where it, there is no plural. I mean, it's the plural of itself. So you say, you know, I like that one manga, or I like those ten manga. It's all the same. Um, we talked about already manhwa, which is the Korean comics, um, and those you can tell on the shelf because they're. Korean is actually written and read the same way that English is, so it goes from left to right. So Korean comics will be in the normal traditional English reading order with the uh, the art uh, the same way that we're used to. Now, the three big topics I want to talk about, because these come up a lot in what's going on right now, is the um, demographic titles. For example, uh, shonen. Shonen jump. Shonen is a word that means young men. So anything that's quote unquote shonen is aimed at that audience, um, you know, ten to sixteen year old males, pretty much. Um, it's going to be you know typically, you know, action fighting, uh, a nerdy guy, you know, falling in love with a whole bunch of girls, things like that. And that's um, what I find interesting is that they do have, you know, their genres are named. I mean, shonen is if if it's a shonen book, it's for young males, if it's you know, uh, talk about that. I mean, as far as uh, I'm sure that's what you're you're going to go to, but um, it just seems interesting that they sort of categorize everything so diligently. Well, well you know the reason why. Uh, what I think is that it's it's just like on television, it's done by demographic because they sell magazines to certain demographics. That way, they can target ads at certain demographics. And they can sell. They say this this magazine is aimed at young boys, so uh, we're gonna have stories that we think appeal to young boys, and then we're gonna advertise, you know, sneakers or tech or whatever the things that young boys want. Um, the the same thing goes with, like I said, the other one, the, the big one right now that's really getting a lot of press is the shojo manga, which is just the word shojo means uh, young girls, and that's where we're really seeing a huge boom in the sales right now is the fact that for once I mean we are getting girls reading comics and it's definitely not American comics unfortunately for a lot of people but they are they're reading and they're they're really buying this stuff in droves now one of the things I do want to point out is that shonen and shoujo uh, they're not really genres what they are is just kind of like I said a demographic category so you could have a shoujo girls book that's full of action that's, um, you know, it seems like it might be a boy's title, but just for whatever reason, it's not categorized as that. The main way to tell is usually who is the main character. If it's a male main character, um, a lot of times it's, you know, aimed at males. If it's a female main character, it's aimed at boys, but that's just very generalized kind of story, and so don't hold me to that stuff. The other category that we talked about is seinen, manga, which is manga that's aimed at the older males, the, you know, 20, 30-year-old males. 
And that's the kind of thing we've only gotten a few titles here uh, that fit that. And most of them that we got, I think, were ones that came out a back in the early 90s. You know, stuff like Akira is aimed at older audience, and stuff like, you know, the Samurai, Lone Wolf and Cub, and uh, Crying Freeman, and, and some of those things, like Monster, for example. Again, those are all aimed at, at older males, but I, you know, I have a really bad feeling that those are just not going to sell here, because those aren't, those aren't the people that are buying the books right now. Um, Which is kind of a shame if you think about how influential some of that stuff has been in comics and even, you know, films, TV, and, you know, something like Lone Wolf and Cub has gone on, you know, you see that, every, you know, in, in everything from Frank Miller's work to, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to uh, Kill Bill Volume 2, you know, I, I mean... Yeah, and people actually say that cartoon Samurai Jack has a lot of influence yeah. on that. So, well, I, I think that we're seeing one of the, one of the, the differences between the American comic book consumer and the American uh, manga consumer, and it's it's largely an age difference. You know, would, Matt, would you say that the majority of consumers in this country that buy manga are teenagers, and probably the majority of the people that buy American comics are college age and oh, much older? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't want to pin myself down without seeing hard facts, but that seems to be the way that it's going right now. Um, I did a little survey in my anime and manga club that I have at my high school uh, of the 30-some members that are in there, and of the 30 people, almost all of them said that they read manga, and none of them said that they read American comics, <laughs> or knew anyone that read American comics. And th that was mostly 14, 15-year-old uh, mix of both boys and girls. What the heck's wrong with them? <clears throat> no, <laughs> it's understandable though. I mean, it it you know, I think one of the big things is that it's more accessible. It's it's in an easier format to get your hands on and understand what you're getting. You know, they have it clearly defined. They explain how to read it in just about every book you pick up. Um, yeah, it, it's it's simpler to ingest. You walk in, you know, you walk into a bookstore. And buy a digest that's got 300 pages, and you know kind of what you're getting before you you know even purchase it. You walk into right. a comic shop, and you know you have no clue if you don't know if you haven't been there before if you don't know exactly what you're looking for. Most of them, and it's you know, clearly defined where to jump on volume yeah, one. Exactly. You walk into a comic shop, and it's Fantastic Four number 457. Well, gosh, I I can't start here. I've got to find you know number one first. Absolutely. So I, I think that's a huge part of it. What other kind yeah. of uh, terms uh, should people look, you know, be on the lookout for? One of the other terms, one of the big terms that is is going to come into play a lot more is this term OEL manga, which stands for Original English Language Manga, which is more or less it's American comics by American authors that sort of use some of the. Um, graphical conventions or cliches of the traditional Japanese manga. Um, a lot of people, and myself included, I don't really believe that they should be called manga because really they're, they're just like any other um, alternative comic that you'd find in the United States. Um, they do, you know, they're influenced by manga stories and so, you know, it's kind of iffy. They had... Um, big news with this stuff lately is because they 
Tokyo Pop put uh, two of these uh, English manga strips into newspapers a few months ago. Um, I don't know if you remember reading that in the news or mm-hmm. not, but it was kind of a big deal. And there's also sort of a, an OEL manga strip that's running in the Cosmo Girl magazine. And so uh, Tokyo Pop, they're really putting a lot of their future efforts into publishing and finding this kind of stuff. Um, so I'm not a big fan, but I know we have uh, a person on the forum, Torch Song, uh, or Al, as he's known, who works as a reviewer of manga of sorts for IGN. And uh, he sent in an audio clip kind of talking about some of the OEL books that he thinks that we should be on the lookout for. Hello, this is Al, Torch Song if you're a regular at the Comic Geek Speak forums. Matt asked if I could do a quick bit on OEL manga, and I immediately said, no frickin' way, dude. Then he said he'd throw in a back issue of Identity Desk, and I said, oh, I'll have it for you by the weekend. That said, let's start with the obvious question, what the hell is OEL? OEL stands for Original English Language Manga, and the debate's hot and heavy over whether you can really call it manga or not. Everyone has an opinion on it, so here's mine. Manga comes from Japan. Manhua is Korean manga, and OEL doesn't come from Japan or Korea. Pure and simple, there's little difference between an OEL book and the indie books you're going to find every day at your local comic book store. And that doesn't mean these books aren't worth your time. Some of them are quite good. In fact, here's three recent releases you might want to check out. The Abandoned by Ross Campbell is the classic zombie tale with a little southern flair thrown in. When the residents of a nursing home suddenly rise from their beds with a taste for the flesh of the living in a small Georgia town, the survivors are forced to band together to keep on surviving. The book follows the conventional zombie storyline we all know and love, but like most zombie movies, it's all about the characters and what they're willing to go through to make it out alive. If you're a zombie fan, this is a solid read for you. Sorcerers and Secretaries is a little something for the ladies. Okay, I read it too. It's the story of a girl so wrapped up in fantasy, the sword and sorcery type, that the real world fails to live up to her expectations. This makes it particularly difficult when she catches the eye of someone who just might be her one true love. Thing is, this guy doesn't stand a chance against the imaginary sorcerer she keeps dreaming about. Creator Amy Kim Ganter has received some pretty good accolades for this book, and it might be worth checking out if you're a fan of movies like Labyrinth. One of my favorite OELs is I Love Halloween by Benjamin Roman and Keith Giffen. No big shocker there, because I'll usually pick up anything Keith Giffen attaches his name to. But it's the art that really sells this one. It's like a perverse cartoon you might see if Nicktoons were run by Satan, and the storyline's just as wicked, but it's also morbidly funny. If you have a really dark sense of humor, this is your book. It's not for the kids, but it's definitely worth your time. The second volume of a planned three-issue series is out now. Any way you package it, whatever you want to call it, good comics are good comics, and some of the OEL out there is well worth your time. Whether we want to call it manga or not is a debate that probably won't end when you get done with this podcast. But no matter how much of a manga purist you might be, don't let it stop you from checking some of these books out. Tokyo Pop has a ton of OEL titles coming out in 2006. It's a genre that's definitely going to be around for some time, so why not embrace it? I hope this helped give you some insight into the wonderful world of OEL, this is Torch Song, and I'll see you in the manga section. All right. Well, thanks, Torch Song. That's why I have to yeah, was... thank him on the forum. That was uh, um, interesting. Uh, OEL is I not something that. Segment. Yeah, he's he's. I I feel podcast in his future. 
<laughs> but uh, I, you know, I haven't picked up any OEL. Uh, Matt, uh, have you had pretty good luck with it so far? Um, you know what? Like I said, I'm to me, I'm really a snob because I don't pick up the <laughs> manhwa stuff either. I don't look at the Korean comics. I don't look at the really. I don't look at the OEL stuff. Um, and it's not that I don't think it's good. I just I don't know. It's sort of like. Um, you know, I guess you're kind of like the person that won't buy American beer. You know, they only buy the imports, certain brand or something. I just, I don't know. I, I like the manga, official kind of from Japan stuff. And there's more than enough of that to keep me going. So I just haven't really explored the other thing. Um, I do want to mention though the one big, really big smash success uh, of you know original English language manga stuff is the comic Mega Tokyo. Um, by Fred Gallagher, which is started as an online web comic, um, but has done really pretty well in book form. In fact, he just uh, he was being published by Dark Horse, but he just jumped ship over to uh, DC's CMX line recently mm-hmm. and made a lot of waves with that announcement. Um, well, do do you think that OEL? Um is a good jumping on place for people that want to get a taste of manga before they, you know, jump into uh, getting the the full fledged trades. Or would you suggest, you know, just go to Borders and 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 dive right in? Well, quite frankly, I mean, like, like you said in the the segment, OEL stuff to me, it's it's just like any other independent comic. And I'm an independent comic fan, so you know you. It'll be good. It'll be bad. It's not necessarily going to be manga, though. Is what I'm trying. I guess what I'm saying. It's, it's, um, you know, it still c- could be a good comic. You know, check it out. Um, I guess if manga is too Japan-centric or something for you, then maybe, maybe that's uh, the answer. But I, I really don't have that much experience, so I don't want to say either way. AroundComics.com, your source for discussion, news, and reviews about your favorite comics and creators. New podcasts available every Monday. Go to www.AroundComics.com. Let me just move on to one other thing that I want to talk about as far as terms. Um, Like anime, which has a very active fan-subbing community, Manga also has a fan-subbing community, uh, what's called Scanlation. By some, uh, back in the early days, what you'd find on like BBSs and Rec Arts Manga or something like that, you'd find uh, people would literally translate an entire manga volume line by line and write it out as a text script. So that if you bought the original, you could sit there next to your computer screen and like go through and read the script and follow along with what was going on. Now, with the advent of scanning technology and Photoshop and stuff, what you get is that as soon as a popular series comes out in, in the Japanese magazine, you've got somebody that's scanned it in, um, they have translated it, they've re-lettered it, and then they posted it online. So it's um, anything that you want to see, a lot of stuff that you cannot get here, a lot of the genres that aren't you know for those young readers that you can't find here will show up and they're they're available uh, in scanlation if you can find them. Now I won't tell you where to go for that but um, <laughs> use some searches on Google. I'm sure you can figure it out. Yes, Around Comics does not endorse the piracy of comic books. <laughs> well, you know what? This is the thing. To me 
that's different than somebody taking the Marvel comic off the shelf and scanning it. Mm-hmm. It's an available. I mean, semantically, issue. semantically, it's. It, it, I know it is. Technically, it's not. You know, it's it's not legal, but they are actually doing the work of translating the material by themselves. They're not stealing someone else's translation. So I guess it's kind of half and half gray area. That's a whole other episode. <clears throat> now, I know um, that, that uh, we have another um, uh, sound uh, piece that Lena Taylor sent us on her uh, favorite segment of manga, or at least one <laughs> of her favorite seg- segments of manga. Um, why don't we just go ahead and play that? I'm not going to, I don't think it needs any introduction. I think, uh, other than if you don't know who Lena Taylor is, she uh, also does a podcast um, called I Read Comics. And uh, if you haven't checked it out before, you, you probably should, because it's, if nothing else, interesting. Hey there, this is Lena Taylor from the I Read Comics podcast, and I'm here to tell you about what I did on my summer vacation. No, wait, that's wrong. I'm here to tell you why I like Yaoi. I like Yaoi for a lot of reasons. Uh, first, let me say that it's not for everybody. It's a very specialized form of manga, and to my mind, it's kind of like eating wasabi peas, they're really spicy and they're really good and they're great once in a while to add a little flavor to your diet but there's no way that you could live on them all the time so I like my manga and my yaoi in small doses to start off I like gay porn and that's a big part of it because yaoi is all about boy-on-boy love Um, lots of women like gay porn lots of straight women lots of straight-ish women like it so it's not as unusual as you might think Another big part of Yaoi, because it's boy-on-boy love, and the boy is the important part there, is that there's a lot of angst involved. It's all about romantic relationships and where things go wrong and why one guy can't get another guy. So it's very angsty in a soap opera-ish way, and I like angst once in a while, too. That's kind of why I like shows like Deep Space Nine. The other things I like about it include the plots, which are often incomprehensible. They're incredibly convoluted and often require multiple readings of a book to figure out exactly what's going on. And frankly, even after I've read a book six or seven times, I still can't figure out what's going on. But, you know, who cares? Because there are pretty boys having sex with each other. Now, I do have to say that the sex is not as graphic as one might like it to be, because according to the way uh, yaoi is done in Japan, you can't actually show, say, penetration or even um, sex organs, so there tends to be little clouds of uh, fluffy things happening where you might expect to see actual sex. I also like the stylized art that's the case in most manga, and it's true for yaoi as well, that everyone is drawn with those really big eyes, and there's a lot of emphasis on hair and very long fingers, and of course they're all extremely western-looking. They don't look like Japanese people. But I think it's kind of cool. It takes some getting used to the first time you open a manga book or a yaoi book, you wonder what the hell's going on, but soon you begin to understand what it's about. I also like the fact that they come, most, most manga and yaoi actually come from Japan, and even with a very good translation, there are still cultural issues that don't really translate well from Japanese society to American society, and there's an interesting cultural dissonance that happens where you have characters complaining that they've tried to give a present to someone and that person didn't accept it, and therefore it was not only an insult to the giver of the present, but it was an insult to the present as well, and somehow the present lost face. And that's just kind of a strange concept, but it's good. I think one reason why a lot of women like 
Yaoi manga in particular is that it's a chance to see a romantic, angst-filled relationship between two boys, and there isn't the same kind of power imbalance that you always get in any heterosexual romance, no matter who the two people involved is, because one of them is a woman, the woman is always in a, a lesser position than the man. So you can enjoy the angst and enjoy all of the soap opera antics that go on without it personally affecting you and identifying too much with either of the characters. And like most manga, there are stereotypes that show up in just about every yaoi story that you see. There's the guy who is the cold, um, aloof, sexy, powerful one, and he's usually really tall. And then there's the other guy who's the one um, who's in the power, I want to say powerless, but less powerful position. And he's usually quite feminized, which also takes a little bit of getting used to. But he is a man. He does have a penis, even though it's not actually drawn that way. If you want to find out a lot more about yaoi and the difference between yaoi and shonen ai, which is a different form of boy-on-boy love that doesn't have actual sex in it, go to Wikipedia and look it up because there's a lot of really good information there. So in conclusion, I like yaoi because it has weird art, incomprehensible plots, and gay porn. Thanks. Thanks, uh, What more do you need? Hey, uh... (laughs) You know, it truly uh, is a testament to that there is something out there for everyone. Wayna talks about Yaoi uh, quite a bit on her pad on her podcast. Uh, I read comics, so if you're interested in that, and she goes more in depth in, in a lot of different uh, specific stories, uh, check her out. And uh, she also has another podcast called Look at His Butt, which is uh, really a lot of fun if you're a Star Trek fan that likes to make fun of some of the, the things in the Star Trek universe. So I want to thank Lena for sending that in. Yeah, that was nice of her. Um, the reason I asked her to do that, actually, is because, believe it or not, for uh, heterosexual males, it might be a little hard to understand, but that uh, there there's actually been a lot of success with those books being published here in the U.S. So um, there's, a, there's a readership. I don't know that. I, I guess it's, you know the same appeal that there used to be. Um, you always find those kind of like Kirk and Spock love stories on the internet or something. I don't know. People seem to. I, I never found those. You may have, Matt. Thanks. Well, I think she That's brought up a good point about um, you know the relationships, uh, and if you're a female reader, reading a, a typical American relationship um, between a man and a, a woman, you know, you generally you're going to see a, the, the male in the dominant role and the female in, in a submissive sort of role. Um, and in this, you know, like she pointed out, you, you have something a little different than that. You don't necessarily, you know, you're not looking at, um, you know, some sort of, I don't want to say sexist uh, or misogynist, but you don't have that come up in, in that sort of a story. That's true. So, I mean, that may be a big part of it. I, I don't know. I mean, I honestly have no idea. I well, the big appeal um, to the the people that actually buy this, as she said, are uh, straight women. Uh, these are comics that are made for women. Uh, idealized kind of relationship. They're they're not you know aimed at. Uh, they're not written for gay men by gay men or anything like that. They're very kind of you know idealized, uh, unrealistic sort of stories. Um, I tell you what, guys. Let's uh, let's move on to some final thoughts on on manga as as where it fits into um, our world of comics. Um, I'll let uh, 
I'll let our expert Matt um, start off. Uh, where do you where do you see manga going from here? Well, one of the things I wanted to touch on with the sales is that um, the biggest really surprising success that we've seen out of this whole thing is the the sales of manga to the young girl or the teen girl audience. Um, there's a series that's called Fruits Basket that is just, I mean, the thing, it's got 12 volumes, and all 12 volumes are on the book sale chart, and they all last year sold 40,000 copies each. And it's just, there's no advertising, and there's like no, so I don't know, it's coming out of, it's coming out of this need, there's a desire, there's something there that's fulfilling the needs of these readers that American comics aren't doing or have not figured out how to do. So, you know, I don't know if there's anything that we can do as uh, with our comic industry. I mean, aside from trying to emulate um, what's working, I mean, I don't know what else. No matter how hard we try, I really, I just don't think that we're ever going to sell, you know, uh, Spider-Man Loves Mary Jane to that many girls out there. Um, the way I see this going as far as in general, right now sales are still on the upswing. Um, the more anime series that tie into the manga, the better they're going to sell. But we're already seeing a lot of the kind of smaller manga groups uh, get into trouble with sales. If they don't have the big licenses, they're kind of out of luck, you know. Um, a lot of their sales, selling to bookstores is kind of a double-edged sword because you have returnable merchandise. And a lot of these smaller publishers are finding that, you know, they're only selling... Uh, thousand or two thousand copies of their book, uh, and it's just you know it's kind of a crowded marketplace right now. So what I the way I see this breaking down is that you're going to get even further dominance by those big two publishers. Um, it's going to be very property driven, very uh, you know the best sellers are going to be the things that are on TV and tie in with um, the uh, figures and the animation and everything else, and. I'm hoping that we're going to see uh, expansion of comics or manga aimed at the older audience, but I, the way things are going and the way that the sales have been for most of those titles, I, I unfortunately don't hold out a lot of hope for that stuff. Well, Sal, um, your thoughts on manga? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting how you look, you know, listening to the history of manga and, and where we're at now here in this country with it, it, it it sort of parallels, you know, the big two companies now. Uh, you know, you, you have Marvel and DC that had huge readership in in the 40s and 50s, um, and as those readers grew older, you know, they they lost a lot of that. Um, I think, you know, I I mean, not being an expert in any way on manga, but I think you're kind of seeing that same thing now. You, you're seeing huge numbers of young kids reading manga but as they grow older unless you have um, things that will interest them as they get older you're going to lose a lot of that readership um, I think luckily for manga they have that they do already have that they have plenty of stuff that is geared towards older readers so they have an advantage there where you know, Marvel and DC are sort of stuck doing the same thing they they've been doing and trying to change that as opposed to create anything new. So I don't, you know, I, 
it's hard to say will will it you know will it be a fad i don't think so i think you're going to see um, it change. I don't think it'll ever. You know, it'll stay at the success that it's seeing now. It may, it may still have a ways up to go, but I think at some point, it, you know, it'll certainly fall. But I don't think it's gonna. You know, it won't ever disappear at this point. Uh, the world's too small in that sense anymore for the, for something like that to happen. But, um, you know, I, I myself have not been a huge fan of it. I, I'm not. Uh, um, I can't say that I am a fan of manga. I've read some. Um, I just don't like reading it backwards. <laughs> to me, it's backwards. I'm not a huge fan of a lot of the art. Um, but that's just me. There has been stuff that I have enjoyed a lot. Um, but I can certainly see the appeal, and I can certainly see why they've been successful, um, both creatively and business-wise. They, they seem to really... Uh, know what they're doing and and they're succeeding at it. Well, I think you're right as far as the only the only way that this I think is really going to end or if it's going to fall is the fact that if the current audience right now these young teens if if they feel that they've outgrown it or if they there isn't a next step if there's not a next you know more adult level to go to um, then I think that we are going to have some some trouble but. Um, you know, if, if they're banking on just as kids get older, they're just going to keep buying into it. Then you know, who knows? Well, you'll you'll have your core audience. I think it'll be a lot like today with American comics that you'll have your core audience of people that are still reading stuff that you know maybe is nece- isn't necessarily written for adults, but um, unless they you know they exp- there's just no way they're going to be able to keep the kind of readership they have now. As those people, you know, grow into their twenties and thirties, I'll agree with you guys. And and my final thoughts on it is that manga is is different than comics. It's it's sequential art. It's um, it has a lot of similarities similarities to it. But I really kind of consider them more cousins than brothers and sisters. Uh, there's certainly a lot to learn from manga if you are Marvel or DC especially because they have the, the publishing power to um, collect and emulate what manga is doing but uh, I think that we need to be careful to compare the two and and take one business model from manga and try and and move it over into American comics like they're they're very different and I don't think that you'll ever see them be uh, side by side and uh, you know I, I think that we touched on on a lot of the the bigger points about manga there's certainly more to discuss but uh, uh, I want to thank Matt for uh, kind of starting us off on this uh, I'm sure that uh, that Matt would love to uh, to help anyone out with any recommendations so uh, you can go ahead and, and send us an email at info at aroundcomics.com and we'll make sure that that he gets a hold of it he is very knowledgeable about it and I want to thank him for teaching us about manga today. Well, I hope I didn't put you to sleep. <laughs> and there's a lot to learn. Uh, let's, uh, let's move on. It is time for Wire to Wire Comic News. These are your top headlines for the week of March 20th, 2006. Tommy Lee Edwards, now... A Marvel exclusive. 
Artist Tony Lee Edwards has sketched out an exclusive deal with the House of Ideas. Edwards' lush painted graphics and detailed illustrations have not only been admired by comic fans, but have also been devoured by followers of advertising, animation, movies, children's books, magazines, and video games. When asked about his upcoming projects, Edwards said, I'm painting a pile of covers for Daredevil right now. He continued that the main project he'll be spending the first year on is five-issue series called Bullet Points. It's written by J. Michael Straczynski and involves a huge chunk of the Marvel Universe. Some of the main characters are Reed Richards, The Hulk, Iron Man, Peter Parker, Steve Rogers, and Doctor Strange. The Darkness PS3 Game No matter where you look, darkness is coming. One of the new places you can look is the April 2006 issue of PlayStation Magazine, which features a darkness cover and nine whopping pages of coverage. The Top Cow Productions smash hit property The Darkness is the first PlayStation 3 game to grace the cover of the prestigious magazine. It's on sale now. The Darkness video game, developed by Starbreeze and published by 2K Games, is slated for a release as a launch game with Sony's upcoming PlayStation 3. Darkness comic book writer Paul Jenkins has written the script to the game. Jack Kirby returns to Marvel. Marvel announced that it will publish a comic series based on a Jack Kirby property beginning in July. Jack Kirby's Galactic Bounty Hunters with characters and concepts created by Kirby as expanded on by his daughter Lisa Kirby and longtime Kirby associate Mike Thibodeau will be published by Marvel under its icon imprint. Other Kirby characters, including Captain Victory, will also appear in the book. One Year Later continues to sell out. The excitement over DC Comics One Year Later continues as Nightwing number 118 has sold out at the publisher and is going back to press for a new printing. The Nightwing number 118 second printing reprints the story by Bruce Jones with art by Joe Dodd and Bit and will feature a recolored version of the cover by Jock. It is available for order now and scheduled to arrive in stores on April 12th. Who wants to be a superhero? The Sci-Fi Channel, Nash Entertainment, and legendary comic book creator Stan Lee will produce a six-episode, one-hour weekly competition reality series that will challenge a lucky few to create their very own superhero and reward the winner with the best reality competition prize yet, Immortality. All you'll need is an original idea for a superhero, a killer costume, and some real superhero mojo. The winner of the six-week competition will walk away with their superhero immortalized in a new comic book created by Stan Lee himself. It gets better. The winning character will also appear in an original sci-fi channel movie. If you think you've got what it takes and have an original superhero inside of you, put on your costume now and call FSA Casting at 310-360-6630. Ennis and Roberts are just some good old boys. Garth Ennis and newly signed exclusive DC artist Derek Roberts are working together on a project for Wildstorm called The Boys. According to Ennis, The Boys are a CIA team assigned to watch, investigate, occasionally blackmail, and now and again kick the shit out of, and when necessary kill superheroes. The whole idea is to keep super people in line. The Boys is due to hit stands in October. Batman Year 100 sells out. 
the first two chapters of the futuristic Batman Year 100 miniseries, written and illustrated by Paul Pope, have sold out at DC Comics and are going back to press. Featuring recolored versions of Pope's original covers, the Batman Year 100 Number 1 and Batman Year 100 Number 2 reprints are scheduled to arrive in stores April 19th. Witchblade in Anime Japanese-owned GDH has obtained the rights to create an animated version of the popular U.S. comic Witchblade by Top Cow Productions. The concept of this action-adventure fantasy involves the Witchblade itself, an ancient weapon passed down throughout time that selects one female bearer each generation. The original Witchblade concept is used in the Witchblade animated series, but the story has been localized for the Japanese market. The main character is a Japanese woman, and the setting is Tokyo of the near future. DC announces Green Lantern promotion. Tying into the upcoming Green Lantern Corps miniseries written by Dave Gibbons and illustrated by Patrick Gleason and Prentice Rollins, DC Comics offers qualifying retailers the chance to order promotional Green Lantern rings. For every 50 copies of Green Lantern Corps No. 1 ordered by May 17th, retailers may order one bag of 50 Green Lantern promotional rings. Please note that supplies are limited and may be allocated. Rings are for promotional use only, and they do not actually give the wearer of the ring superpowers. Brody's Law goes to Marcosia. Marcosia Enterprises has signed the critically acclaimed comic book series Brody's Law. Brody's Law, written by veteran comic book scribe Alan Grant, has been a massive success for its creators David Burcham and Daily Osiemi, and the series has already created a much-deserved buzz within the comic industry and community. The first volume of the trade paperback has seen several printings, with 500 copies of the trade paperback sold at the 2005 San Diego Comic-Con alone. The series will continue from issue 7 at Marcosia and will be available in June 2006 through Diamond Comic Distributors. The same month, along with several of the Chimora Studios trade paperbacks, a brand new printing of the 144-page Brody's Law trade paperback will be made available with additional concept artwork from Birchman. Harry Marcos, managing director and owner of Marcosia, comments on the signing of Brody's Law. Brody's Law is without a doubt one of the most groundbreaking comic book series to come out of the UK in the past decade, and it shows that a great story can be appreciated the world over. David and Daly's work ethic is second to none, and when you see the hours of work they've put into this series, you can see that they love what they are doing. Marvel announces all new exclusive deals. Marvel Comics has been on a signing rampage lately handing out exclusive deals like variant covers of X-Force No. 1. Here's a list of the last four creators to sign exclusive deals at the House of Ideas. Talented penciler Yannick Paquette, fresh-faced writer and filmmaker Zeb Wells, talented journeyman Scotty Young, and fan-favorite artist J. Scott Campbell. These have been your top headlines for the week of March 20, 2006. For the full version of these and other stories, go to AroundComics.com, your source for the best in comics news, reviews, and opinions.
right, guys, there you go. This is uh, this week's news. Uh, we'll start at the top here. Uh, Tommy Lee Edwards is uh, now a Marvel exclusive. We can tie that into the last story. Uh, looks like Marvel is uh, buying up all the talent out there. Uh, what do you guys think about uh, exclusive deals? Well, you know, uh, we've talked about this before. It, it's for me it i understand if, why a creator would want to sign an exclusive deal it gives them stability that kind of thing but you know marvel and dc has all this great talent tied up and and they're not able to create you know original stuff that uh that maybe we would have seen them do otherwise yeah i, I think it's good for the creators in in some regards because yeah, i think the big thing is is health insurance unfortunately that seems to be a big draw for an exclusive deal and also you know contracted work they you know they're they're guaranteed work for a certain amount of time uh we actually talked to phil hester today and he had some great thoughts on uh exclusive exclusive contracts and and why he um chooses not to do that for for right now he he gave some you know ideas what what it would take for him to sign a, an exclusive deal but uh you know, just uh you know sign of the times i believe uh matt you um are all these guys that are signing exclusives i mean are they all finding things for them to do that are really worth their talents i don't know i'm just asking you cuz i'm not the biggest Mo- marvel follower well, and it's not just Marvel. DC signs lots of, of talent to exclusive True. contracts. And I, I think it, it, it depends on the deal. Um, you know, uh, Phil actually was talking about Warren Ellis. And Warren Ellis is signed to an exclusive with Marvel. But under his contract, he can write for just about anyone except for DC. So it depends on what the deal is. I think each one is different. And because you're signed exclusive as an artist, you may be able to write for anyone or vice versa. If you're a writer under an exclusive deal, you may be able to do art for a variety of different companies. So I I think it's on a case-by-case basis. Um, We'll move on. Um, A couple uh, couple video game headlines uh, going both ways. one is Halo is going to be a graphic novel under uh, under Marvel. Wait, is it a graphic or an ongoing series? Uh, uh, actually, graphic novel. And then uh, a comic actually going to video games is The Darkness. And uh, I thought the interesting thing about that story was that Paul Jenkins is actually going to write the uh, the script for the game. You know what the thing is about that, though, is there. I don't know what it is about us. We cannot seem to cross-promote anything. I mean, I would be highly suspicious if any anybody that bought that game actually went and bought the comics. Um, most people that are going to buy the Spider-Man game, they're going to buy it anyway. Um, I don't know how much difference that makes to the average guy on the street, but um, you know, I, I guess the, the proof's in the pudding, so let's have to wait and see what it looks like. Yeah, it's just a piece of the pie, and they've got a. They've got to work a lot of different angles, and you know whether it's movies and cartoons and video games and toys and everything that they're already doing. I, d- I just don't know if it's increasing readership. You know, it has to at some point 
and I don't think that you can take any one facet of it and say, you know, uh, 50,000 people bought Ultimate Spider-Man, the video game, and we think that 5,000 of them are going to read the comic book. There's no way to gauge it. We kind of talked about it in the manga spot that there's really no way to track sales uh, because of the way that, that Diamond tracks that. And so it's, it's, it's a lot of unknown quantities. But, you know, it is nice that those are crossing over into the video game market. Uh, move on. Uh, a Jack Kirby property is coming to Marvel. It's uh, going to be his Galactic Bounty Hunters. Um, is there still enough interest from people to go out, if it has Jack Kirby's name on it, to go out and check it out? Oh, I certainly think so. I, I mean, why wouldn't you? Um... Well, um, I, I have one word for you. Tops. <laughs> Do you guys remember when the Tops comics tried to launch their whole line on Kirby kind of throw-off concepts? Well, I don't know. I don't, I don't think really the same thing. Sales. I don't think it's yeah, a guarantee. You know, oh, but... I think a lot of that has to do with timing. And, you know, that was at a time when I mean, people were starting to get real weary of stuff out there. It, Kirby is enough of a, an iconic name, especially now that, you know, unfortunately he's passed away, that for the the longtime comic reader, if it has his name on there, I think they'll check it out. Now, whether it's good or not, we'll have to see. But you know, I, I think it will drum up a certain amount of interest. Well, it's also in the presentation. I mean, it's you know, you don't have some nobody doing this. You know, kind of raping you know Kirby's name. <laughs> it's his daughter and and his longtime you know partner that are doing it. So, only time will tell. Uh, moving on, uh, this is no, no big story. Uh, Nightwing sold out. Uh, DC, once again, another one year later title is going back for a second printing. It looks like they are just uh, an out of control steamroller right now. And uh, good for them. I think Dan Dito well, is just going around buying all these copies so he can <laughs> republish them. How many copies did they actually print? I think that's the question because. Yeah. I mean, how many, I don't know, how many sales, how many did they print? If they only it's printed 20,000 copies for a huge, you know, everyone knows that these are going to be big demand on these first issues for one year later. So, I don't know, if they're underprinting just to be able to, you know, kind of hype themselves up, I, it doesn't mean as much as if it's actually... Well, you know, I, I would prefer that, if they're doing that, if they're, you know, intentionally underprinting on these, first of all, that doesn't make much sense from the, from the printing standpoint, from a volume uh, so, I don't know, they may have these warehoused somewhere, you know, but uh, I would rather see them underprint and drum up interest by telling people that they've sold out than printing, you know, five million copies and flooding the market with stuff that's going to sit on retailer shelves for the next year and end up in the 25 cent bin. At, but if you're hyping this as a huge stuff. jumping on point, I mean, doesn't that defeat the whole purpose to have sellouts? Well, it's also it's also creating a sense of urgency for the consumer. Um, we're so conditioned, I think, now to waiting for the trade or waiting for things to hit the dollar bins that if you can create a sense of urgency with the consumer, you're you're working your way into guaranteeing a success. So, from a marketing standpoint, it's if that's indeed what they're doing. Plus, um, we don't know how many they printed, so. To mm -hmm. say one way or the other is well, I know that's why I'd be interested to know. We'll move on. Um, who who here wants to be a superhero? Me. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I I'm working on my costume now. 
and uh, I'm all ready to uh, go meet Stan Lee, and yeah. <laughs> Do you guys uh, remember Ravage 2099? No, can't say that uh, on that one. Oh, I'm just trying to say because like you'll you'll be immortalized in a Stan Lee comic, and I'm sticking. When's no. the last time? <laughs> like 1965, the last time that Stan had a good comic. I mean, I, lo- I love the guy, but you know, he hasn't had a great track record of uh, publishing stuff in the last few years. Yeah, we'll we'll see that the whoever gets to star in their own comic book. I don't know if we'll be doing a uh, a reprint story on that one, but uh, <laughs> it, it's cool to see that Stan is still out there and he's such a recognizable guy. You know, I can't. Can, can you guys think of anyone else that would be the person that sci-fi would use for this? Um, no, Joe Casada. No, I no, I don't know nobody. Um, yeah, it, it, Stan, it's, it's the Stan. one thing that Stan always did great is market himself and comic books, and you know, regardless of. His track record in the last, you know, however many years, he's he's uh, still a legend. And you know. yeah, I mean, he's a great personable guy. It's just kind of I don't know. It'd be kind of funny. I don't know. What are they gonna have these guys like? Okay, who can rescue someone from the burning building or what? Kind of you know, it's a reality it's, TV show. I, I you know I wouldn't <laughs> take it too seriously, but um, it's you know it's fun and funny, and uh, I'll watch it. What the heck? I'm checking yeah, out. Yeah, I know they're going people. to, but. I really hope that they don't play up the whole ridiculous fanboy aspect of it. You know, the pulling guys out of their parents' basements and that kind of stuff. Well, who do you think I, is I really you hope that's going to show? <laughs> I know that's what it's going to be. I, I cringe. Uh, next story. Um, Garth Ennis is working with Derek Roberts on a new series called The Boys. I, uh, I am going on record mm-hmm. as saying that's going to be my favorite series of this year. Before I've seen anything, I don't care. It's going to be big talk. It's going to be, a be great. Be careful because I, I put out a a preemptive guarantee that Annihilation was going to be great. Yeah, but everybody I, told you that was going <laughs> to. And, and Annihilation just started coming out, so we got some time. But <coughs> yeah, the, uh, <clears throat> sorry, what <laughs> the concept of this uh, of this story? Pretty cool. Uh, a team. Uh, assigned to watch, investigate, occasionally blackmail, and now and again kick the shit out of, and whenever necessary, kill superheroes. That uh, that sounds like it's in Garth Ennis's wheelhouse. Absolutely. If it's Garth Ennis beating the crap out of superheroes with a with a really good artist, gold. Uh, let's move on. Uh, another sellout. Batman Year 100, uh, both the first and second issues have sold out on that. It's actually been a top-of-the-stack selection twice on the show now. I know that uh, that Sal is liking it. Uh, it's one of my favorite uh, mini-series out right now. Uh, uh, and it looks like a lot of other people are liking it. Matt, have you picked up Batman Year 100? Um, I, I, read the, I got the first issue. I've read about the first uh, 20 pages, I think, so far. Um, you know, I'm a big Paul Pope fan from way back, and again, this is one of those stories, like, what kind of numbers? I I have a hard time thinking that DC really believed in this book that much to publish a really big print run. I think they're just finding well, themselves well, Whether it's a big print run it. or not, it had a pretty hefty uh, price on it. I think it was, what, $4.99? $5.99. Uh, I'll have to take a look. So it was pretty expensive. It was, uh, you know, it's uh, a little bit higher quality book. <laughs> And I don't know if there was a whole lot of, of drummed-up anticipation for it. The next one, uh, we touched on some anime earlier in the show. 
and Witchblade is uh, going to anime, but they're going to change the story up a little bit, and it's going to be a Japanese-based Witchblade. So, it's uh, say what you will about that about that series and franchise, but it's still around, and there are a lot of people that uh, that are interested in it. Yeah, it's kind of funny to think that that uh, that series that I really have never given a crap about has spawned like a, a little TV, cable TV show and all this other stuff. Um, yeah, there's a tradition of of uh, American comics being translated into manga. I don't know if any of you guys read the uh, the uh, the Spider-Man manga that they published through Marvel a couple years ago, and uh, they're releasing the Spawn manga right now. And some other things, and it's always changed. I mean, they always change it to localize it, but uh, I still probably won't pick it up. <laughs> sure. Well, look, look for Witchblade, the the anime, in uh, in video shelves near you soon. Uh, next story was the Green Lantern ring promotion. Is everybody ready to run to their local comic shop and grab their uh, their Hal Jordan replica ring? I do want one. You know, I got the last time that DC did that about eight years ago. They did the same thing with giving out plastic Green Lantern rings, and I still have that. So, looking forward well, to Sal, it. Sal, are you are you going to run and get your get your ring whenever it comes out? Um, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think this. It, it's nice that they're promoting, and once again, you know, with. With Dan Adio and his his whole ground roots local comic shop push, I think this is just one more in a series of promotions and ideas that DC is is doing to, to drive people to the local comic shop. You know, you're not going to be able to. You know, you, you'll find this on eBay like crazy, I'm sure, but. For most people, you're going to have to go to the local comic shop. It's something that I really respect out of DC right now. I hope that that Marvel will kick in and and come up with some programs to get people to the local comic shops. Uh, that will wrap up our Wired Wire news for the week, and that means it is time for top of the stack. Top, top of, top the, stack. of the stack. The stack. The stack. That's right. It's time for Top of the Stack. It is our chance every week to let you guys know what we have been reading. Uh, I'll start off with mine. Uh, the new release this week of Squadron Supreme. It is the uh, mainstream relaunch of Supreme Power, which was the J. Michael Straczynski title under the Max imprint for Marvel. Uh, what happened, as far as I understand it, is that Supreme Power was very popular, but it was not able to be sold in a lot of local comic shops, especially in the South, because of the Max imprint, where a lot of stores are not allowed to sell comics with adult content. Due to the popularity of the, of the series, Marvel decided to relaunch it under the regular Marvel imprint. They're going to clean up the series a little bit. You're not going to see uh, curse words. You're not going to see nudity. And not, not that those are necessarily great things in comics. I did love the, the gritty, realistic attitude that the book had. Yeah, that was the big draw for me that it took a spin on the Superman story to begin with. And it wiped away the 
kind of glossed over look of, you know, the alien crashes to Earth, is raised by, you know, Ma and Pa on the farm, and it really put a spin on what would really happen. That uh, uh, won't spoil the original Supreme Power for you because it was very good, but it is a much more, you know, quote-unquote realistic look at what would happen. Uh, I was very scared about Squadron Supreme being retooled for, you know, the masses, but the first issue was a pleasant surprise. I got to the end of it, and to tell you the truth, I really couldn't tell the difference between the the previous series run and what I had just read. Uh, the themes are still, you know, very adult. It just doesn't have the uh, uh, cursing and, and nudity, but it's very well done. It, uh, once again, is written by J. Michael Straczynski. Um, it's produced by Marvel, and the art is done very, very well by Gary Frank. Uh, if you were a little worried about Squadron Supreme, don't be. I was uh, very impressed, and I think it's a very good relaunch of the title, and look for more of it. And that is my top of the stack. You know, Chris, I think that's interesting based on our discussion a couple weeks ago about the uh, swearing and nudity and things in comics. Uh, I, I think that's kind of good that they actually did a decent, you know, kind of more mature title that didn't have to resort to that kind of stuff. So, glad to see Well, you. good writing is good writing, and good comics are good comics, and you don't always have to have shock value. And I think it was Tom that had a great quote that uh, um, mature titles in comics appeal to the immature reader in all of us and I think this showed that you don't have to you don't have to do that crap <laughs> I didn't like it nearly as much but I guess I'm just immature I don't know that's okay uh, how, Sal how about you what's your top of the stack this week well I dug into my archive and picked up uh, some manga the very few that I've I've ever read um, and we've already talked about this book a couple times on the show Lone Wolf and Cub Volume 1 The Assassin's Road this is a reprint from Dark Horse um, it's a small digest size I pick it up, picked it up for 10 bucks it's like 300 pages um, it's I think the first 10 stories from Lone Wolf and Cub uh, if you haven't read this before it, it, I mean it is classic stuff it was done in the set 1970s um, any you know if you're a fan of any type of samurai film or just good interesting storytelling um, I, I you know I can't recommend it enough it's a classic work um, <laughs> it, it has gone on to influence you know Frank Miller and you know, t Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and, you know, Quentin Tarantino and movies and TV shows and, um, you know, you can't quite go wrong with it. I mean, it's just extremely good. It's it's interesting story about a samurai who is uh, banished from his, um, uh, I don't want to say cult, no, his, um, geez, I can't think of the word. Uh, gang or whatever and um, he has to become an assassin but he also has a three year old child so it leads to some interesting um, scenarios when he you know he doesn't um, look at that as a hindrance he actually uses the child to his benefit which is really interesting sometimes um, to, to see what happens with these two characters as they go off killing uh, his clan uh, 
former members of his clan. But um, it's great stuff, and and like I said, you can't can't go wrong with it. It's one of those books that whenever people will put up on a forum, you know, name the you know the great runs in comics or the essential uh, collections to to look into, and then people will put up you know you know Dark Knight Returns or Watchmen or Kingdom Come or you know the, everyone lists those off, and then usually about twenty posts down, someone says, "Well, hey, you know, Lone Wolf and Cub," and then everyone replies back, "Oh yeah, you know that totally belongs there. You're right. It is it is a classic series." And, and Dark Horse oh. is printed like mm-hmm. all tw- I think there's 28 volumes they've reprinted, so you can read the whole, the entire thing. Yeah, it was really my introduction to to manga, so it's uh, it is a classic. Uh, Matt, how about you? What is your top of the stack this week? Well, uh, my top top of the stack, uh, and this also comes from one of our listeners, um, Bob and his son, who's known as JLA fan on the forums. Um, sent into me a suggestion for uh, what he would want to recommend, and I'm going to agree with him here. Uh, I'm going to also go with a, a manga book this week, and um, and I already talked about Monster, and that really I think is the best, more adult book out right now. But one I like a little, slightly less, but still get into pretty well is uh, called Death Note, and this is one of the best-selling books right now on the bookstore scan, so it's it's pretty popular, and a lot of people have talked about this. Um, it's aimed at more of an older uh, teen audience. So again, it's got a very realistic drawing style. Um, this is published by Viz, seven ninety nine for uh, two hundred and twenty some pages. And the story is this: we have a, a a character who is a senior in high school, a brilliant, you know, uh, model kid, model student, and one day he's walking home from school and he finds this notebook on the ground and the notebook turns out to have been dropped by a, a death god and whoever's name he writes in the notebook will automatically die and so it sets up kind of a situation where he decides that he's going to be kind of like a, a superhero or an avenger he's going to clean up you know kill all the criminals that can't be reached and he starts off that way but then he very quickly turns into um, kind of a really evil bastard because he uh, realizes that you know the police are going to be coming after him and he starts to kill off the people that are coming after him and so he gets into really a kind of a cat and mouse situation between him trying to do his mission to become uh, you know the god of the new society and uh, the people that are trying to stop him so uh, there's four volumes out right now and, and the first four volumes are actually pretty pretty tight pretty intense story um it's gotten a lot of good press already from a lot of other people. Uh, so if you have not checked it out, then uh, take a look at Death Note Volume 1. All right, we will be on the lookout for Death Note. I've, I've heard a lot of, of good and disturbing things on the forum about it. It's, uh, uh, it is I, a pretty, pretty graphic book. Yeah, I, I sent you one of those, I believe. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm getting ready to take a look at it. i got a pile of manga from Matt to, to go through. Well, guys, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Uh, once again, thank you to Matt for walking us through manga. 
uh, I will invite everyone to visit us on our forum. Just go to aroundcomics.com, or you can go to comicgeekspeak.com. Our forum is uh, partnered with Comic Geek Speak, and uh, we would love to hear from you there. Or you can send in an email at info at aroundcomics.com. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Uh, Sal, thank you very much. Matt, thank you. You guys have a great week, and we will see you again next week on Around Comics. If you would like to suggest a topic, send us your comments, or are interested in becoming a panel member, email us at info at aroundcomics.com, or visit the Contact Us section of our website. For that, and the latest in comics news and opinions, go to www.aroundcomics.com. Music for this show provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network, music.podshow.com. Thank you for listening today, and remember to join us next week, where the panel will change, but our mission stays the same, bringing you the best in discussion, news, and reviews in and around comics. <laughs>